Hi, I'm Mike Shea, uh, the host of the DMs Deep Dive right here on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. And uh, today I am here with Emily Dresner. Uh, Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, how are you? Uh, my name is Emily Dresner, and I've been writing for RPGs since about 1997. I've worked on paper RPGs, and I've worked in the video game industry for uh, several years. And uh, now I just do a lot of freelancing on the side. Awesome. What what are what are some of the things that you worked on in the past? What are some of the the RPGs and video games you worked on? Uh, well, um, so uh, I had a technical position on the Elder Scrolls Online. Oh, cool. Uh, I was part of the launch team for that game. So if you're playing that game, ah, uh, yeah, shout out to my homies at uh, Zenimax Online. <laughs> and uh, I've worked for Steve Jackson Games. I've done some White Wolf stuff. Uh, I worked for Guardians of Order back when it existed, back in the early times. Uh, I just started blogging like crazy about gaming and economics in 2014, and uh, I'm working on a secret project right now, which I can't talk about, Ooh. but I can tell you I am working on secret projects. We love, so, so just <laughs> just to tell you, I've had a couple of people on the show who had secret projects, and they talked about them, so no, I'm just not letting you know, if you feel free, you know, no one's really listening anyway, it's perfectly safe. <laughs> it's just, it's going up on YouTube, and, but other than that, it's, it's fine. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> so, Hello, uh, internet. <laughs> so I uh, uh, really fell in love with the articles that you wrote on Critical Hits about the economics of D&D. Not only you would think that and, and, you know, I kept thinking about when I put in a tweet like, hey, come and talk about D&D economics. I'm like, that's total. That sounds boring. And that's it's not like these these articles are not only interesting, but very funny. Right. And the one in particular and, and we'll, we'll, we'll we'll dig into it a little bit, but you know the, the the problems that occur when you discover a pair of mat when an adventuring company discovers a pair of magic boots is not something we typically think about and you wrote this wonderful article that got into that then we'll we'll talk more about that one but uh with every one of these shows i always like to to dive right into specific tips that people can use this is um in particular to D&D &D, um and we're we're all you know kind of in the midst of 5e D&D &D here um what are three tips that uh you have for us to build the resemblance of a working economy in our D&D &D games well, the, the first one, I think the big one is to keep in mind that economics is like a tech tree, like any other kind of tech tree. If you play a, a ton of Civ-like games, you know you buy things off of the tech tree and one of them happens to be economics. But in reality, if you look at history and anthropology, uh, economics is in fact sort of a tech, tech tree just like the history of science or even Age of Sail. And uh, they all sort of work together in a, in, a, in a locking way. And most of the modern system that we think of economics, if we think, start thinking about Piketty or whatever, is very, very late 20th century. Uh, we have to keep in mind the concept that floating currencies that were off of actual metal that were backing it, currencies didn't float and become fiat currencies across the world until the 1970s. So we're really talking about only maybe 50 to 60 years of what we consider the modern economy and things like complex instruments like derivatives and subprimes. Uh, that is really a 1990s to now invention. So mm -hmm. most of what we consider to be an economic engine is very, very new. So there's a, a, a several dials that we can turn when we're building an economic system for a game. Uh, so we could say, do we have banks, right? So banks are only about 500 years old yeah there was early very early versions if you go back to rome stuff that you know people could stash their stuff but 
banks as we think about banks, sort of a public institution where you could stash your stuff and come and get it later and it will actually still be there. Mm-hmm. The, the concept of it it's still being there is sort of a new thing. Um, does your world have banks? Do mm-hmm. your Does your world have actual open markets, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Is, is there no baron is going to come down and demand corruption every time you sell an apple, right? Is it, are you free to exchange money with the other guy? Because for most of history, you were not free to just exchange money for the, with the other guy. Uh, do you have an open stock exchange? Do you have the concept of a corporation? Can mm-hmm. you invest in people's adventuring companies or adventuring guilds? Can you own shares of that? Can you buy shares of that? Can you trade shares of that? Trading that share was a huge in, uh, invention that happened in Amsterdam. I don't mm-hmm. know. Do you have currency exchanges? Can I exchange money with else? Can, mm-hmm. I don't know. Can you? Okay. Mm-hmm. Is, is there an exchange rate for my human money for the elven money or the dwarven money or the orcish money? I don't know. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Do you have, what kind of shipping does your world have? Do you have actual ships that are transoceanic? That's a new thing. We've only had them for 500 years. Um, do you have trains? Do you have roads that are paved? You have what kind of fast transportation? So these are all dials that you can turn on your game. If you actually have paved roads, your economy is much different than a medieval economy just by paving your road because your peasants can get more than 10 miles away from their homes to take the wool out of their house and go to the next town to sell the wool. That's a much more dynamic economy than, say, 14th century England when there wasn't paved roads. Mm-hmm. We have to ask and there's things like different government types, right? Are you a monarchy? Are you a theocracy? Are you an oligarchy? Right? Uh, are you some kind of technocracy? So, you know, what your laws look like, what the tax laws look like, how open it is. So there's just all these sort of dials to think about. So when you're building a working economy, you sort of want to sort of turn all those little dials and try to decide. Now, if you're going strict medievalist, right, and you're saying, I want a hardcore, I'm going to play the 14th century, you don't have any of these things. Your bank is a box under the bed. <laughs> you have no coins because coinage didn't appear until after the age of sale. So you've gotten, you have no coins and the few coins you have are in a bank, a box <laughs> under the bed that whoever's cleaning your room in the end is going to find on your bed to, oh, this goes in my pocket. And i walk the off and there goes your entire <laughs> venture. Right. So, so that's one. <laughs> that's, that's one thing to think about. Twist the dials. Twist the dials. All right. Set your dials, twist your dials. You can write an entire game system just around twisting those dials. Uh, the second one is always to remember that cities are where any of the action is at. There's no action in a sort of fantasy world outside of a city. It's just, the, the city is where everybody comes to trade. And Finan- when you have Financial actions, any financial actions. Any financial actions, right? So the countryside has no money whatsoever. All the, and all the money is going to be concentrated in the cities, and all the power is going to be concentrated in the cities, and all the power is going to be concentrated in very few. It doesn't necessarily mean the pure nobility. It may be in all the hands of the guilds, or the Lord Mayor, or the Lord Mayor is the guild, right? Or it might be the guilds, it might be the baron, it might be the courts. If you're talking about the age of the rise of universities, universities own cities. Uh, so, but that power is held very close to the chest because they know once they walk outside of their city, barriers, right, all falls apart. So everybody comes because that's where everybody is because they're all attracted to where all the money is. This is common throughout all of history. We all go to New York, we all go to London, we all go to Tokyo, right? It's where all the money is. And uh, people don't go to North Dakota 
unless you want to go to North Dakota. Here it's beautiful, right? Um, and the third one is always to remember that a uh, a price is a signal wrapped in an incentive. Uh, what does that really mean, all right? So let's think about an apple pie. Apple pies are pretty cheap commodity things, right? Say there are two gold, there are two copper pieces in your world because there's lots of apples, right? There's lots of apples. And but so let's say you have a race that lives just on apple pies. Well, then they're probably going to want to start devouring all the apples. So the apples are probably going to start being worth more, right? So, and then let's say the orcs come and burn all the apple orchards down. There's only one apple pie left in the world, right? So that price has gone from being two copper pieces to saying a million gold pieces. Because, <laughs> right, so... It's the it's only one. The only one. So we got a signal. It's very rare, right? And the incentive, if the race that lives on apple pies is eat the apple pie, they're going to die, right? Mm -hmm. So the worth of it is very, very high. So we start thinking about how we can price things. And we'll talk a little bit about supply and demand when we come through here. But it's very important. Once a market is trying to figure out a price for a thing, so if you let markets float, they find prices, what, what the, the market is willing to bear for a price to exchange a good for some sort of thing that's equivalent value. And so you can start thinking, well, you know, the eye of Gerberts has, there's only one and it's world destroying, right? It's <laughs> world destroying, right? So, but it's probably worth a lot of money to somebody, right? So a lot of people are willing to go through dungeons to go and get the eye of Gerberts. Uh, but not a lot of people are going to fight over apple pies if apple pies are very, very common. Unless they're mm -hmm. delicious, you know, because you can have fights over apple pies if they're delicious. Mm -hmm. so, so it's always something to think about when we're talking about, right, this thing is worth 10,000 gold pieces. What is that 10,000 gold pieces really? It's, well, it's a signal that's wrapped in an incentive. The signal is that it's, it's worth something, 10,000 somethings, zorkmids, to somebody, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the incentive is... is and there's an incentive to acquire it. So that's what we think about with, with, with pricing. So if you start pulling all that stuff together, right, you can talk about, well, now I've got paved roads. I can get much faster to the Eye of Gerberts because it's a paved road. And it's in the city because it's something's being traded because that's where all the wealth goes. So you've got a city that's paved, got paved roads, and then it's worth a whole lot of money. So everybody wants it. So they're stabbing each other to death. And now we've got a game. Mm -hmm. So there you go. So those nope. are my three items. Yeah, those are great. Those are great. And and so so one of the, you know, I'm I'm one of my probably one of my biggest drives in D&D &D is how to do things easier. Right? How do we how can I give and and since since we're running fantasy games and since it's much of it is illusionary anyway, I don't need to actually come up with a really deep detailed, I'm hoping uh, economic model, you know, 300 page economic source book that's going to talk about how how trade works between the various cities on the on the sword coast. What what can I do to fake it? Like, how can I give the illusion of a of a of a of a, you know, some of the some of the more interesting details of, of an economic model like this without actually having to implement it? Does that right. make sense? Right. So on a small scale, right. So we're just running one game. And we just have one group of adventurers, and it's a even if it's a city, it's it's a it's a local scale that things are going to be pretty consistent on a local microeconomic scale. Right? So if you're a GM, and you're like, I want to do this. Just having a pricing list is fine. We can make assumptions about the world that vendors like gold pieces. That's not always true in the medieval world. Not all vendors take money in actual medieval world. 
uh, because there's no money in actual medieval world. But we can make an assumption that there's banks and there's credits. We'll move the dial to, I don't know, 16th century. And we can make an assumption that uh, vendors take money and that prices stay largely static for common goods over short spans of time. Mm-hmm. And a short span of time can include the two months a campaign exists or something to that effect. Unless you go and blow up the world, then all sorts of interesting things could happen. But right, but if what you're doing is that you're going through sewers to kill cranium rats uh, because you're playing Planescape for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, then right, prices are going to stay largely static over short spans of time. And the GM really doesn't need to take in any kind of macroeconomic effect. Uh, unless, right, again, we we're in a floating city and we decide to destroy its floating device and it plunges to the ground. Then, then things could happen bad. But if we want to start getting a little bit more cunning, a little bit more interesting, uh, we might want to consider right some basic supply and demand. Uh, so here's a good example of some very basic supply and demand. The PCs have decided that they're going to rally the local village. And they're all, all going to race t- to war and they suddenly need a thousand Right, man, there's a thousand people, and we're going to aim them, arm them with a thousand spears. Well, first of all, you need enough blacksmiths to crank out a thousand spears. So if it's like, well, it takes them a week to do ten, and I do a thousand, and you can do the back of the math, right, envelope calculation, you can figure out it's going to take a while for those blacksmiths to make the thousand <laughs> spears. So yeah, maybe you can go get a drink and wait for a while, and maybe there's a dungeon, maybe there's a little dragon off someplace. I don't know. There's an Etten in the hills. You can go kill that and come back get some levels, and then they'll be done with it. Um, but more interestingly, right, so again, now we're in some village in the middle of nowhere, you need a thousand spears. There's only so much wood that's surrounding the city or the little town. So it's possible that while you're preparing for war, you could deforest the entire area. Uh, maybe the horses go with are unshoed, and so now none of the horses are pulling plows because there's only, only so much iron to go around. There's only so much wood to go around. Um, they kill all, all the cows and then tan them into leather because there's only so much leather. So all of a sudden, you need a thousand spears and you're going to take the entire village to war and you've com- made the entire village uh, go fall into complete poverty. But you have a thousand spears and now you can arm them and fight the orcs. Well, why would you do that? Well, right? So this seems like a bad idea, right? But if the orcs come and destroy the village, they're going to go and they're going to burn all of the fields with all of the grain. And if they burn all the fields with all of the grain, then all the people in other villages around this village, they're all going to starve to death and they're going to die. So you can start pulling some supply. All right, I don't have any forests anymore. We're <laughs> all going to fight in these open plains, but we all get to eat after we kill all the orcs. Right. Right, so we can start thinking, we can pull a little bit on these little levers here about here's what's available in resources and supply. I have this big demand, we're looking at it, and really the price, if we don't pay it, is that nobody eats for the next year, everybody has famine, everybody dies of disease, right? So, right, so, and, you know, if you can think of it like, you know, an evil pirate uh, hijacks a wool trade, and then wool pirate prices skyrocket because there's no wool, Maybe there's some people that get very rich because they've invested in the pirates to go and hijack the wool trade because they want to make a bunch of money on wool, but all the poor people go naked. So mm-hmm. so these are just some some knobs, some interesting little levers that we can pull if we just think about, oh, you know, a sword is made of iron. What does that mean? 
where's it coming from? Where's it coming? Oh, it's coming from that mountain. Okay, now I got to chop all the villagers over there to go dig it up out of the ground. Mm-hmm. To go and make all this to go and kill, kill the orcs because nothing sort of lives in its own isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, I did write an article once, which I actually really did like, which uh, was. <laughs> do you, do you not like most of them? <laughs> I don't. Rem- <laughs> I wrote so many of them. I, I actually don't remember them all, um, which is weird but true. But there was one that I would I, I particularly like where old man sitting in the back of a bar sends the uh, party off to go and kill a bunch of goblins. Right. And they go and they kill a bunch of goblins. It turns out what the old man really wanted was the goblins off that land because the goblins were putting everybody out of business by uh, cornering the market on salt. And the old man really just <laughs> wanted the salt factory underneath the ground. So he hires the adventurers to go get rid of all of all of the goblins. This is basic supply and demand, right? There's demand for the salt. Goblins got the supply. Old man's got the money. Pay for the adventures to go wipe out all the goblins. Right. Is it ethical? Eh, so much for your lawful good alignment. <laughs> right. But these are but these are the very simplest sort of of knobs to tweak when sort of dealing with the economics inside of a fantasy world. Um, yeah, I was just, I'm, I'm just, I've got a bunch of your articles uh, up on my other machine here, and I was looking for that one. There was there was another uh, sub-piece to the the Goblin one, which was the um, the supply, the the uh, attrition of supplies that the Goblins would have compared to the attrition of supplies that the Adventurers would have. And that it was yes. actually in the Goblins' best interests. On the assumption that the Goblins were going to lose, it was in the Goblins' best interest to just hand the Adventurers a pile of money when they come up to the front door and say, yes. this this is as much as you would make if you killed us all. And then, and we, you know, hit you with poison spears and you had to buy potions of poison. So why don't we just have a transaction right here at the door and call it done? You know, yes. it was <laughs> far more. And, every, and everybody walks away. Everybody right? walks away. The villagers, you know, the villagers are happy. The, the adventurers are happy. The goblins are happy. You know? The old man who hired the adventurers pissed. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Because he, he wanted the salt the mine. Yeah, he wanted the salt mine. <laughs> So the adventurers broke the contract between him and the old man quest giver. <laughs> it reminded me of, uh, I think it was L.A. Story, where um, uh, Steve Martin and his date are walking up to the street, and there's a line of, of people on dates on one side, and there's a line of muggers on the other, and they just pair up, and the mugger says, hi, I'm Jack, I'll be your mugger today. And he goes, oh, it's nice to meet you, Jack, and hands him you know, the money out of his wallet, and then they go their separate ways. That's sort right. of the same, like, why don't we just make this a nice, calm transaction, and we could just be, you know... I'll it's be just done business, it. right? At the end of the day, <laughs> when we're talking about those transactions, it's just business. This yeah. is how much this actually costs, right? So how about I just give you the cost, and then you walk through it. I keep my salt mine. You get your money. You go on your way, and you know that the goblins, they got piles of gold in the back, and they're just, like, shoveling it out, going, here you go, right. here you go, here they're you go. They're selling salt, right? Right. <laughs> And you know, and, and you know what's going on in my head is that that's a CapEx expense, and they can write that down on their taxes. <laughs> I don't want to talk about taxes yet. Um, so the uh, the other one about the the town and the making the spears and burning down the forests and um, or, or cutting down the forest to make spears and and survival and that that sort of uh, supply and demand. You know, like we have to balance yeah. out what 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 do we lose if we just let the orcs come versus what do we lose if we try to fight the orcs and what's the you know what's the economic balance of that. But there was another article you wrote that um, I was just I was just looking at and. Um, uh, uh, about what 
an economic benefit it is to a town or a city that happens to be sitting on a, you refer to it as a hellmouth, uh, but essentially one of the, you know, the limitless dungeons and what kind of benefit that could provide. Could you, could you, could you walk through that, that model there? Right. So, um, oh my God, I have to remember what I was exactly thinking of when I wrote that article. I'll it up with you. It's, it's, been, it's been a while. So I'm like, what did I write this? No, it, it, it totally makes sense because you have adventurers. They come, first of all, it's a tourist town, right? So <laughs> there, so there's an offering. It, it, it attracts people to the town to spend money in the first place. They spend money on food. They spend money on goods that, of course, are just being sold everywhere at cheap prices, surprisingly cheap prices, right? <laughs> so it's like Doug's discount spears. <laughs> Like oodles of magic items. It's like like a mecca. And then, you know, there's these inns and then there's food and there's booze. And you know that they're they're going to charge double on all the booze, right? So whatever they they bought for the supply for the beer, they're just going to, whatever the double is. You know, the inn always makes money off booze. So when the adventurers come and they always buy in rounds of drinks, you know they're making bank on it. So you know that that's the economic model for the, for the inn right there, right? So the inn's always got all the money. And so it's a tourist trap, first of all, <laughs> with tourist chatkas in the form of stuff that comes out of the hellmouth. And then they don't really want the tourists to return, so they can send them down into the hellmouth to die. And that's great, because right. some higher level guy is going to go down there and harvest all their stuff that they find they already sold. And it's just extra stuff they're going to bring up and sell back in the town. And the town <laughs> has so many swords, and now they're like one copper piece of peach. Look, I've got piles and piles and piles of swords. So it's a huge economic boom because it's it brings it's an attraction. It brings people there. There's a continuous supply of stuff coming out of the Hellmouth, right? So big adventurers go down there and they kill the monsters and it drops gems and they come back where they can spend the gems, right? They're going to spend it on the stuff that had come up from previous adventurers that they had sold in the town. So we got so we have a lot of magic items washing around. We have lots of sources. I'm sorry, I don't actually remember what I wrote in it. I'm just mm -hmm. hoping I no, you're right. Yeah, what I wrote, but. And, uh, you know, and so just sitting at it, that, that town that sits next to the dungeon, you know that it's like this opportunistic bunch of people that are sitting there going, yeah, well, I'm just going to skim this off top. I can just see like the T-shirt shops next to the Hellmouth. Oh, visit our Hellmouth. Our right. glorious Hellmouth. And, and it's this it's this idea that, you know, it seems and I, I, I very particularly think of uh, the yawning portal in Waterdeep. And yeah. while I was reading the article, I was like, I wonder if Waterdeep's wealth all really comes from the fact that it's sitting on top of Undermountain. You know, that like there's this limitless mass dungeon below that's filled with coins and filled with magic items and filled with all the resources you could possibly want. And you don't really want it all at once, right? right. You don't want to strip mine it, but but sending down groups of adventurers every few weeks who then come back up laden, you know, laden with loot or dead right if they die then you don't care but some of them come back and when they do they're almost always willing to pay 10 times the cost for just about anything right, right. <laughs> because for them money now just got cheap and then all of that sort of bubbles like a volcano of coin sort of bubbles out of the out of the yawning portal and spreads its way through the whole rest of the city and then you get the mask lords and you get the you know the noble districts but all of it really comes from the fact that they're it's 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 this gold mine it's as long as people are willing to fight Spelt, you know, fight spiders and demi liches. That's right. It's basically an oil well. It's got <laughs> right. gold and, right, and, right. And, and, and liches. Yeah, right. 
And uh, yeah. the one, yeah. So the one, the one, the one thing that she had in the article, um, and I'm, I'm trying to load it up. I can't find it, but I'll, I'll, I'll put it in show notes. Um, was that what you don't want to have happen is the 20th level party to show up. That's right. That's bad <laughs> because they, a, they're professionals, right? Right. So they know better than to spend it all in the town. Right. They already have everything they need. They already have a whole town that they financed. That's right. They've got they, they've got like like they've got opera singers that are falling behind them, carrying their trunks of loot wherever they go. Going, oh, it's a twentieth level fighter, and they're gonna just gonna go down, right? Oh, they're their skyship, yeah. Right, and the worst thing they could possibly do is go down into the dungeon and beat the boss at the end and close That's the right. mouth. And then the dungeon is closed. And then and the, the dungeon oil is stops closed. flowing. Right, right. And their entire economy is going to collapse. Yep. It's all based on these fifth level adventures just going down to the surface, yep. getting just enough gold to come up and just blow it everywhere and then just go wander off onto their next adventure. Right. I it, found it's an amusement it, it, the article's called The Tragedy of the Murder Hobos. There you go. Back yes. in uh, 2015. And and yeah, that idea that idea that, you know, oh, you know, they can even pretend like, oh, the tyranny of this terrible hellmouth and oh, you know, us. But he's all just flowing out. We love it, you know. And and the awning portal actually sort of has that, right? I mean, the fact that they have an inn that's sitting on top of this and everybody sort of parties right before a group goes down in the well, you know. And every so often, bad things come out of the well and you have to fight it. But that's that's part of the allure, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Just, so, you always, yeah. Yeah, so uh, important safety tip. Always put <laughs> your your beautiful peasant town right on top of the yawning hellmouth. Do you think so? A, a, an interesting here's an interesting question. Do you think that towns would always tend to sprout around hellmouths? I think so because that <laughs> explains every module I've ever read for every fantasy game. Right, you go. Why would you build your town here? Why wouldn't we? Right? It's it's free money. It's pouring out of the ground. Yeah, and it's already got, in coins. We don't even have to make the coins. We just, you know, they come out as coins. Yes. But it's, you, know, it's, you think like one group of adventurers finds this place. They go down there. They come up. They're like, we want to buy stuff. But we don't want to go all the way. Through that. How about you just build, you know, and then it's like Deadwood only you know, with a dungeon right. under. It's exactly <laughs> like, it's exactly like Deadwood. It's exactly like a gold rush town. Right, and it's right. gonna have all things, you know. Well, somebody's got to sell pickaxes. So, so this gets to another article you had, and I want you to walk through the. Uh, I'm I'm bringing up all the articles that I didn't mention <laughs> earlier. Sorry. Oh, great. Um, but uh, one of them was, you know, the the uh, I think it's called Fast Eddie's. Uh, here it is. Uh, oh, Fast Eddie's least weaponry and adventuring accoutrements. Oh. And and the question was, uh, why, um, why is it better to lease? weapons and adventuring gear to adventurers rather than sell it to them directly. Well, right. So first of all, right. So he can get you, I'm just look. I just brought it up. Right. So yeah, I couldn't figure out why first time adventurers would buy their equipment new and yet they do. Right. So, <laughs> I right. mean, it's good for the local, uh, it's good for the local economy, but right. First of all, they're just going to go and buy a bunch of brand new equipment and then just like go die. Right. 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 My yeah, nine out of ten adventure gears are going to get killed by the rat swarms. Right. So, so the stuff is like as new. It's always going to be as new because it's been used once in the rat swarm, and when the rat swarm was gone, somebody went and picked it all up, and then they went and they put it back on the shelf. It's still shiny. All right, it's got a little bit of blood and maybe a little tiny bit of gore on it. Right. But other than that, it's basically they're all in good condition, non-magical weapons. This it's is all seasoned. starter equipment. Yeah. yeah. It's it's slightly seasoned, but it's still sharp. 
<laughs> and even if it's a little bit dull for use, you go take it down to the blacksmith. He can just run it on his stone, and it's just as good as new, right? It's like a ten silver piece longsword, right? But wouldn't you rather just have like some used equipment that is maybe slightly more powerful it's got some for his plate? It's got some arrow holes on it. Yeah, it's got some arrow holes in it. Wouldn't you rather stretch your money for bad stuff? But maybe you want to take that the next level, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't actually want to do comparison shopping for used weaponry because there might be a huge market for all. If like if you, let's let's go back to the Hellmouth Town because mm-hmm. which is now named Hellmouth Town, right? <laughs> you know, there's a ton of first level adventurers who think that they're going to go. Oh yeah, well it's way better. Here, yeah. Right. Right. So they just go and they wander around the top level. They get eaten by some some jelly or something, and then they're dead. Or it's a bunch of goblins or surges. You know, no yeah. surges, right? And then, then somebody goes and brings all that stuff out, and it's old. So maybe you should lease. Maybe you you should do it. You're not so no murder hobo worth their their real stats is gonna hold on to a store bought brand new starter level weapon for very long because they're gonna right. go to the Hellmouth and they're gonna they find the Yeah. So they're immediately gonna trade up, right? So you don't even want to pay that 10, 10 silver pieces. You want to pay like the, the first two copper pieces down and then maybe two go- copper pieces every month if you're still holding on to that sword. Otherwise, you just want to bring it back and give it back to Fast Eddie where he can now sell it off to the used weaponry market. Right. Right? <laughs> so he's going he's gonna to have these great deals on leases and he's going to have a great deals with, on equipment back, buyback. Right? right? He can roll over. So you can roll over to new equipment right on your next upgrade mm-hmm. and he gets the used equipment back that he can now sell into this used equipment market for all of these other adventurers who don't want to lease new stuff but will, are happy to buy gently used only in two fights long swords right yeah so but so, of course so how does fast eddie so for the considering that first level characters tend to die to rat swarms and they leased, they're like, hey, I'll lease you these, these your, you know, oh, you can't afford plate, but I'll lease you a set of plate. It's got some holes in it. It's a little tarnished, heavily seasoned. And yeah, it came from an army that got wiped out a long time ago. But what do you care? You know, it's still plate armor. And But how does he get it back when they invariably die? Oh, yeah. So it says, um, all right. So there is a contract, of course, that you sign on all the leased things. And... Uh, the fast eddies may be subject the remaining terms of the lease to collections to collect the remaining balance of one <laughs> of one's remaining team member relatives or survival of peaceful peasant villages. So the so, so the rest of the group is responsible for bringing back the plate. So the rest of the group, if you sign the lease, <laughs> the rest of the group is responsible for either returning it and paying <laughs> off the remaining amount on the lease. Our fast, our fast Eddie is going to go and repo your peaceful peasant village. Ah, oh, okay. So yeah, I, I guess the other could they could they could the uh, could fast Eddie have sort of a group of fifth level characters on retainer? Oh, of course. Whose whole job is like, I just want you to go down there and collect all the lease stuff and bring it back up. We do that like a, once every six months. You guys go down there and get five suits of plate armor that we leased, and we still got paid. We still got the down payments. They're dead. You still got the down payments. They're That's dead. Yeah. Right. And he's got this whole back room of stuff that he's basically repoed off of other people that have gone and traded up over time on lease over lease after over lease. Right. Right. Which he so, also could sell up. 
I love our I love our dungeon town, our our Hellmouth Hellmouth town yes. uh, idea, and uh, probably everybody's scrambling around to build their own their own Hellmouth campaign. Um, getting getting kind of into the economics of how the fifth edition of D and D works. Um, there's some there's some interesting ways that D and D five e in particular handles uh, economic positions, and one is the the core idea that magic items are rare, right? right? That that you don't even it's very rare to see monsters or or enemy NPCs who are laden with a lot of magic items. You know, even at high levels, they're still generally fighting with non magical items. Um, do you? And, and then if you look at like fourth edition, it was very different. In fourth edition. Magic items were really like they literally had an economy for magic items. Right. So, you know, as, from the mechanic standpoint, it was expected that that you had magic items, but then they even had sort of the economics of you can buy it at full price or sell it at at one fifth price. Um, so, so what are the ways that that has an effect on the whole rest of the economy of a game world? So this is again, this is back to you know what a price actually is and what a price really really means, right? So if you have magic items that circulate freely, right? So I don't have it on me, but think of my iPhone as a as a magic item, right? right? My yeah. iPhone, yeah, there it is. iPhone is right there, right? Yeah. So so in the modern world, if we start thinking about technology as, as magic, right? It's 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 plentiful and common and easy to get even by commoners. So by that so, so thinking about it that way, it means that magic is very cheap. And that means that whatever common magic can do is going to become very common. Mm -hmm. So things that are like common uh, activities that mag uh, magic spells or magic items that are basically standing in for modern tech. Anybody in a high magic world now has access like that. So if you have an item that is create food and water, right? You no longer need to go and subsistence farm on your farm out in the sticks because you've got a magic item that you go bloop and it delivers you a pizza. <laughs> and now you have the magic item of infinite pizzas. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So it's also your wizards are going to be highly incentivized to generate magic items that do very cheap common things. Right. Think about your washing machine. Right, your washing machine is a magic device. Think about think about a time when magic when when washing machines did not exist, mm -hmm. and how hard it was to wash a shirt, or you had to basically wash it in a barrel and then scrape it and 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 soap it and then wring it and hang it and then wait for it to dry. Nowadays, you pick it up, you throw it in the washing machine, you wait twenty minutes. Take it out, put it in the dryer, wait 20 minutes, you put it on the shirt, and it's nice right. and warm. Yay! So, <laughs> in your high magic world, not only does it instantly clean your shirt, right, it makes it nice and warm. So, it's easy to, in a high magic world, where magic can now start substituting for manual tasks. Mm -hmm. It makes it much easier for the population, the common population, to escape something called the Malthusian trap, which is a... Um, which is a theory that states that people cannot move forward in 
economic means until they have some way to be able to release themselves from this infinite manual labor, which is why we really didn't escape the Malthusian trap really into the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, because all of a sudden you start having all these devices that started bringing you food and refrigeration and right things that you did not have before. So in a high magic world, you start getting a lot faster toward the 20th century. Is, mm-hmm. is, what, is, is This is a roundabout answer to that. But you start inserting magic for technology. You free people up to start doing science and you have more magic research. So it all, so it accelerates. So you get, you start with a high magic world and you very quickly over time get to a very high magic world mm-hmm. until it all implodes from too much magic. Or something. <laughs> right, like Eberron. Yeah. So in a low magic world where it's very rare that only the rich, the richest and the most powerful will have magic. And people will largely live in subsistence world and subsistence farming. And they will live, they will largely live in, in poverty, just like in the middle ages, mm-hmm. because they have to subsist on the same manual labor that they had in reality. And only the people that can pay to either have it created for them or have it researched or have adventurers go off and find it and then probably kill the adventurers when they bring it back because it's whatever magic they bring back is going to be worth way more than those adventurers. So <laughs> there's no adventurers living at the end of that adventure if they bring back a magic <laughs> item in a very low magic world. No, because that magic right. item is worth way more than anybody's life. Right, right, including including the people that are going after it too. <laughs> going after it. But lots of people will do it. Now you can build a much different game that's more of a high stakes political game, in a in a more start thinking about government structures and how it is that they make sure ensure that no magic can leak into the world. Because if magic starts leaking into the world, it starts to become common. It starts to become less rare, which means the rich and powerful who are hoarding the magic are going to lose power. So there's going to be government specific government institutions to guarantee and church institutions, in fact, because the church doesn't want that to leak out either because that will diminish the power of the church. Because they're holding it back. As soon as this stuff gets into the hand of common people, they're going to be able to start rise in their economic condition. All bets are off, right? So if magic is rare, the very rich and powerful are highly incentivized to make it rare. Mm -hmm. To make it even harder to find than before. Mm -hmm. So if you only have these 1 to 4 weeks to line up shady vendors, that's probably fake magic. You're probably going to get it. It's basically (laughs) a lava lamp. And you're like, how do I fight the lich with the lava lamp? I don't know. Right. You shake it. It's got blobs in it. Maybe you plug it in. I don't know. You suddenly have electricity. But so it's a way to think that the more rare something is, the more people are going to want to make it even more rare. Interesting. To drive the price up even higher. So the few people that have it will guarantee that it's continuously worth more and more and more. Because once you get locked into a money collecting habit, all right, the temptation is to push it as far as it can go. Yeah. Huh. So so that's where you sort of get the spread. And and you know, and because magic is so powerful and magic is so malleable, it does all the, these things. The last thing, if it's very rare, last thing you want is it to become democratized. Because once it becomes democratized, those people with the magic in their hands are they're gonna be coming for you. Because mm-hmm. yeah, we're not the, living through that. That idea that the value of these things is greater than the people that are carrying them and the people that are even going after them is, is interesting. And, you know, I, I wonder if it will end up like if you actually tried to. I mean, it, it seems like you could put some interesting threads like that into a plot. I often wonder. So in, in, in again, kind of in the fifth edition of D&D, the economy is that it feels like 
the way they've structured it is that the real economy of the world is buried in the mountains, right? Like it's in dragon hordes and it's in deep, you know, in the, the bottom layers of those infinite dungeons. And it's all, it, you know, it's, it's, if you look at like, I've got a map of the Sword Coast here. And if I think about the Sword Coast, like, the, the, you know, Waterdeep has wealth and Baldur's Gate has wealth and Neverwinter has wealth, but nothing like Clouthenvale, the, the Red Dragon's Lair or Imrith's vaults, where, you know, she's been hoarding treasure for a thousand years. Like, if there's a dozen dragons like that, those dozen dragons have way more money than any of the cities do. And the only people who transfer that money from that those, those big pits into the economies that are on the surface of the world are the adventurers. And what happens when they go and collect this stuff and they bring it to places that the entire wealth of the city couldn't afford to buy, you know, the one item that they bring in there. You so, know what I mean? There's two ways to answer the question from about what to do when, with the dragon horde. So I'm going to answer the obvious things second, because we may find the obvious thing to be boring. And <laughs> deal with the non-obvious one first, right? So let's say you do have some magic, right? So in theory, you do have some magic. Magic isn't hoarded rare, but it's rare enough you do have wizards. And wizards have scrying spells, right? That allow them to see into something. So let's say you've got a dragon, dragon sitting on a horde, and a wizard can use a scrying spell, figure out how many coins there are in there. Mm. So let's say the red dragon is sitting on top of 10 million coins. And the wizard figures out the exact number of coins. It's 10 million in some de denomination of coins. So we'll round it up to 10 million coins, right? What's the point of taking it out of the hill? Mm -hmm. So I so I'm gonna gonna walk through this because the reality is that there's no reason to ever take the money out of that hill if you know exact <laughs> if you know exactly how much money is in there. Right. Because instead of going and taking the money off the hill, what your adventurers want to do is they want to buy the land the hill is on. That the dragon is in. Mm -hmm. So so let's say that somebody is very dumb. And they happen to own, and so there's a mountain, right? So there's a dry, old man under the mountain, and they happen to own the mountain. Mm -hmm. To them, because there's a dragon in the mountain, the, dry, the mountain is worthless. So, but the adventurers, they think, well, no, the mountain is not worthless. The mountain has 10 million coins in it, a dragon. Mm -hmm. So they go and they buy the mountain. And now they have <laughs> the mountain, right? So now you've got a mountain that's got 10 million coins and a dragon in it. <laughs> And they say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write this new thing called Dragon Script, right? Because money is just a shared hallucination where we all agree right. that yep. money is worth something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've got, I've got 10 million gold coins under this dragon. I'm going to make Dragon Script, and I'm going to print, I don't know, 10 million pieces of paper that say... Yep. You have one ten millionth of a... You have one ten millionth of a dragon <laughs> horde, and it's called Dragon Script. Right. And... I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give you the implicit guarantee that at any time my wizard can teleport into the dragon's lair, grab one gold piece, and return, and give you the one gold piece for the dragon script. Mm -hmm. But you never actually have to exchange that, because you know the gold piece are, always exists because it's under the mountain with the dragon sitting on it. Right. And it's pretty safe, because no one's getting in there to kill the dragon to take the gold. And no one's ever getting in there to kill the dragon to take the gold. So now you can start actually printing money based on a gold standard, right? It's not flexible. So if you have a lot of inflation or deflation, you're a little screwed. But we're not really worried about that, right? So we're not worried it's about like, inflation. It's like the gold standard, right? 
Yes. Now you've yeah. got the gold stick. Now you've got Fort Knox. And you never want to kill the dragon. Why? <laughs> because he's protecting your gold supply. In fact, you want to feed the dragon. Right. You want to you want to build him a nice little dragon it, nest. It would in kind there, of be so nice if the dragon was in on it. Like yeah, you know, well the dragon doesn't we'll, even. You know, you don't have to do anything. You don't. You just sit on your gold. You're good. But and we'll bring you this thing, just yeah. you know, just so we can print like your picture on the dollar. That's yeah. right. And, and occasionally we'll feed you a maiden. Right, right. We'll bring you maidens. Right. Yeah, that's what your price is. You okay? In fact, we're going to actually fill your entire mountain with extra orcs to protect you. <laughs> <laughs> and bring you stuff. So now you've got orcs in the dragon, and now you're playing like Dungeon Master because you, what you really want to do is you want to protect the entire gold hoard under your mountain that you now own because somebody was dumb enough to sell it to you because they thought it was worthless. Right. And because they thought, well, the money is never getting out of there. I can't ever spend it because there's a dragon on it. So I'm just going to, you want the mountain? You can have the mountain. So now you have an economy running, and your economy is running pretty well with anybody who can actually exchange dragon script in your town. And you basically sort of eased, instead of just picking up all the money and just dumping it like manna from heaven on top of the... <laughs> right. They can't do anything with it. What are they, you know, they're no. going to lose half of it to brigands. <laughs> right. So you didn't do that. The brigands don't want your dragon script. And right. now you're printing dragon script that's backed essentially by your dragon coin. Now you got an economy running and everybody's sending it. You've got trade. Now people are going to come in and now everybody's going to be basing all their coinage off of the dragon standard. And now next thing you know, the entire country is running on the dragon standard until you get hit with inflation and all collapses right. and you need to do or, something else. Right. Or, right. adventurers go and actually kill your dragon. Or the adventurers go and kill yeah. your dragon. And, and now you're in a really heart. bad state. Yeah. And we actually do historically know exactly what happens when you take an enormous amount of money and you dump it on an economy. Mm -hmm. Because the, the Spanish did exactly this. Mm -hmm. The Spanish went to Peru and they enslaved all the Indians and they made them dig all the silver out of the ground and they put it on their ships and they took it across the sea. And they minted it into coins and they dumped it on their economy like crazy people. And um, it sent all of Western Europe into an enormous depression. Hmm. Because all of a sudden, right, so things were, there's very, there's not much coin, right? So in the Dark Ages to the Middle Ages to even the Age of Sail, there's not much coin because they, there wasn't much silver. there, And there wasn't much gold. You had to get gold and silver until the Fuggers figured out how to get it out of the Alps, which they eventually did, Right. But before then, you had to import it from the Middle East. There just wasn't that much physical, raw material, gold and silver, in which to put into a press to make a coin, physically make a coin, right? So that means that coins, when they circulate, are actually worth a whole lot because they're very, very rare. So when we think about, you know, trying to, all these chests full of coins, you, they got this, right, we have this nobleman, he opens up this chest and it's got all these coins in it, and he's vastly wealthy. Well, he's vastly wealthy, because he's got these coins in it. And so when you have this big chunk of gold, right, and you just dump it on an economy that doesn't have any gold, and everybody suddenly has all this gold, gold's not worth very much anymore. Mm -hmm. The entire thing implodes into a giant deflationary cycle. And if heroes went into the under the mountain and they took all that gold out and they promptly just dumped it on everything all of a sudden that gold because there's so much of it washing along it will take a while will take years to ripple out from the one like ground zero town as people like grab it and take it and run off into other towns that don't have all the gold so they can spend it while it's still worth something 
Mm-hmm. What you end up with is like people with barrels full of gold trying to buy bread because the gold's not actually worth anything anymore because there's just too much of it. The economy wasn't designed to absorb all of that money all at once. So it just collapses. It just collapses mm-hmm. into a black hole. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so this leave the money under the mountain. Right. Set up your dragon, dragon script. Right. Put the dragon script so you right. have very limited and very careful control over how fast. Right. I mean, I'm, I mean, they could theoretically take all the money out of there and, like, put it into the economy one gold piece at a time. <laughs> right. But that's going to be a little slow. And right. people are going to get impatient. And then there's these guys over here who are hoarding the magic. So they're going to want to build armies to go kill the guys with the magic. So money's going to go leak everywhere. And once money starts leaking everywhere, I mean, there is going to be a pop where a lot of people are going to get very rich. But a lot of people that only had like five silver coins and it was worth all this bread. And all of a sudden, five silver coins are worth half a loaf of bread. They're all going to starve to death and die. Right. So because right. it's a it's it's deflationary cycle is exactly what will happen when you dump all that money into the economy. God, this is this is a fascinating discussion. And I want to I want to uh, bring in some of the questions that we have from our from folks that have uh uh, talk to us on Twitter and from the people that have been responding in, on Twitch. Uh, okay. We have our, our guardian angel hanging over us, uh, Alex Basso. Alex, uh, what questions do you have for us tonight? All right. Let's start with a question from Twitch from Vegas Lancaster. Uh, he wants to know, do you think putting thought into the economy of the world is worthwhile work for a DM? That is, do you think it's something regular players will notice and appreciate? So I'm going to step back away from economics for a second, and I'm going to talk about game design. And game design is really more about building a game engine that's flexible and fun that rewards players. And that's really what a game is about. It's about players will have a, an engine that allows them to overcome challenges in a set of some kind of a set of challenges that allows them to have advancement and feel rewarded and feel like that they are climbing a mountain. That is really ultimately, at the end of the day, the point of a game, right? How we get to it, if it's all about the story or if it's all about the the mechanics and the rolling dice, it doesn't matter. That's really at the heart of it is it's really the pump of I'm going to go and I'm going to, to overcome challenges with this particular mechanic and then I'm going to get rewarded for it. So the question really is, is there any challenge in these systems that's worthwhile? And there, are there any rewards that are really worthwhile? And if in your game you don't feel like this is going to provide your PCs with an interesting challenge in the form of, of a story, or they're not going to get rewarded in the form of advancement, then it's probably not worth all of the effort. It's a fun thought experiment but if the the focus of a gm should be fun at the table it's the game should be fundamentally fun and if this stuff isn't going to bring fun to the gaming group then no i don't think that it's worth it but if you think that your particular group of players are going to get some kick out of some of the challenges that you can build that they can overcome with some of these principles then you should think about putting some of them into your stories yeah, there's there's two 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 sort of things I've been I've been knocking around in my head while we've been talking, and one is that um, uh, particularly with magic items in Five E, they don't have that same sort of market that Four E had. Um, but the the recent book Xanathar's Guide to Everything for for Fifth Edition has uh, a, an interesting 
um, uh, sort of, you know, it's not really a mechanic, right? But it's more of like a, a system in place to, if you want to buy a magic item, and it including, includes things like renting a villa that looks really nice to invite the right sorts of people over so you can start to build your network out so you can eventually reach the person who might actually have access to something like this and not scare them away. It was very sort of relationship building in order to even get access. And I ran that for a table. Like they, they start off with like, I want to buy some magic items. And we role played this whole scene and they were rolling skill checks and they were spending money and the amount of money they had to spend to, to, to sort of wine and dine the right people to get the connections. And they ended up, you know, this was not a group. This was a true set of murder hobos. And they really kind of enjoyed like, you know, they had to go buy special clothes to wear, you know, and all this stuff. And it was like, all I want is like, a, and then they get it and it was randomly selected at the end. So then it was like, they went through all this effort for like a Wanda Magic Missiles and they're like, well, what the hell? I'm taking it because we did a whole lot of, we spent three weeks, you know, doing this whole operation here in order to do it. So so I, I really like that system that they have in, in Xanathar's Guide. Um, and the other one where like, we never paid attention to the cost for spell components in my game, really, because it was sort of like an added layer of complexity that I didn't really like, except for one item. And that was uh, there's a spell called Hero's Feast, and it's oh, a yes. really, really powerful spell that, in my opinion, breaks many components of the game, mostly because it gives you poison immunity, which means green dragons are no threat to you whatsoever anymore. And poison is, you know, I think it's like next to fire. It's the most used element. So if you have poison immunity, it's great. And if you can just do that every day, like first thing in the morning, everybody drinks, everybody eats their hero's feast. You have poison immunity forever. So I said that, like, I looked and it's like, well, it requires a thousand gold piece bowl that you, is expended. And it's like, well, the guys are, they're level 16. They have oh, no it's trouble. Expended. Yeah, they use it, right. But it's still, it's like, well, they're level 16. They have thousands and thousands and thousands of gold pieces. They don't care, right? So then I said, well, it turns out, yeah, it's a thousand gold piece bowl, but it's a particular bowl. And it's only made by this one monk who lives up on this mountain and he's going blind and his hands are super arthritic. So it takes him three years to make one of these bowls, right? And he only has two. So you could buy the two from him, but that's it. And then like, it'll take you three more years. And he had a son, and his son was in his stead. But his son ended up becoming an adventurer because it's way more profitable for him to go be an adventurer than to learn his father's stupid trade to make these dumb bowls for, like, one person in the whole world, right? And, right. and you know, and my, my, my players just stare at me, and they're like, you are such an asshole. And I'm like, no! You know, like, this is how it works with the bowls. And it was like, you know, and, I, and so my, my wife played a cleric and she's like, so I have two of these bowls, right? And it's like, and then she had to pay attention to when she cast that spell. So I didn't nerf the spell, kind of I nerfed it, but I, I just limited it by saying like, now you can't just do it every day. You have to choose when you're going to do it. And they did and they it was very effective. But that was one area where like I decided to add a complexity to the economy and, and, you know, I thought it was fun. I love the story of the, the half-blind arthritic uh, uh, bowl maker. Um, I don't know if anybody else appreciated the story. Um, but it also had this sort of this effect. Um, that's why the bowl was worth a thousand gold pieces. Yeah, right, right. It wasn't, it was yeah. that particular, you know. Yeah. That bowl. It's not, you can't just buy any thousand, like how many thousand gold piece bowls are lying around? You know, not a lot of them because they don't sell them. Fast Eddie's least bowl emporium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, except you're not leasing a bowl that disappears when you cast it. That, that's uh, true. <laughs> you can't lease expendable magic <laughs> right. magic components. It, right, you're right. right. 
that system does not work. If you actually build the model and do the data science on it, yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I don't need a spreadsheet to tell me that. Uh, Alex, what else you got? Okay, here's one from Twitter, uh, asked by at DM Whipstash. How might players see the impact of their choices on international trade, and how can you use global economics to show the PC's significant off-screen events? Oh, interesting. Okay, so this really depends on how your knobs are set. So if you're running in a very pure, hard, medievalist setting, it is very hard to have an impact on international trade because countries simply did not trade internationally very much. So if we're talking about, oh, great, we are, it's, we're in the time of the Anglo-Saxons, then you're probably not seeing a whole lot of that. But, you know, if you start to say, yeah, there's shipping and yeah, you want to do cool things like there's, uh, you know, there, the countries are, there's a lot of mercantilism going on where the political stance is that I, as my, I get all the money in the trade for me and none for you, right? It becomes very easy to, it, so if the, the countries are a little bit more advanced and they do have trade between each of them, but they are all taking this very particular stance where I want to have all the stuff, which is very much like Britain East India Company. That's a fantastic version of merchantilism. Um, it's very easy for them to set off a war uh, by simply saying, hey, you know, um, I'm going to start hoarding all of the platinum in my particular country and it's going to make us a ton of money and we're only going to dole it out little pieces and we're going to force the price of it to go really high and all the na other neighboring countries are going to get really pissed and start arming up and declaring wars and attacking each other but you can do this with other things than than, than platinum right even if you decide to start building all building your entire army and deforesting everything and the elves live in the forest and now you deforested their forest right they can get very angry and start rising up and more and th that could have some effect on anger and the economy um and people rising up because imp impoverishment due to pc's actions um obviously once we start getting more towards the science fiction side of things and we go more cyberpunk we can get huge international corporations and they have international reach and we have container ships and so everything's trading around we have floating currencies so we don't really care what money that we're actually trading in we have giant trade markets we can do all kinds of crazy shadow running things um everybody watches mr robot you can go and blow up eco all 70 locations of ecor right knock out the global economy with a hack and that's certainly something where the PCs that have giant implications. So it really depends on, from an economic model, uh, how much reach that economic model really has. This is when we start really talking about sort of trade relationships. If we don't have any trade relationships, it's really hard to do anything. Um, but if we really, if, you know, uh, like, even if we have things like early uh, wool trade, Right. If you cut off that wool trade and all of a sudden everybody gets really, the, the guilds get really poor, they're going to get pissed and they'll start coming after the PCs. So so that's a way of thinking about things, right? If we start thinking about knock, I, I guess a way to answer this is if we start thinking about knock-on effects, right? And if we assume that one country is trading with another country and we start messing with their trade in some way that cuts it off or cuts off people's money or cuts off some kind of supply, then we can start getting the PCs into real trouble on an international scale. 
then there's always the option that you kill the treasury minister um, that will <laughs> trash somebody's economy really fast. Not always the king, right? As these places are always set up to survive kings getting killed. <laughs> right, like, but oh, not, the, not the one person who has the books. But, yeah, but if you whack the guy with the books, right, <laughs> you can wreck an entire country's economy. So um, an, an interesting, while, while you're talking, I was thinking like, well, how does, you know, so it's one thing you wrote an article about, um, and, and I didn't, I didn't uh, have a chance to dig too deep into it, but the, the, the concept immediately resonated with me, which is what, what are sort of the economics around sigil? You know, Sigil is this, oh, and you've written about it before, right? But it was, it was, yes. you know, for, for anybody who doesn't know about Sigil, Sigil is a city that sits sort of in the middle of the plains, and it's connected to all the plains. And, you know, there's, it's called the City of Doors because it has doors that goes everywhere. And I know in my fourth edition campaign, uh, the characters got access to Sigil and created a market that uh, would transfer a particular type of spiced meat from the world they were in into Sigil, and it was the only access to this spiced meat. They sort of had this monopoly that went into the rest of the plains through Sigil, but it created not only like a global economy, but a multiversal economy, right? Yes. Um, because everybody could go to Sigil. But what was interesting about that is you're like, well, not everybody has access to Sigil. The, the typical farmer doesn't, right? So right. it's almost like Harry Potter where, you know, you can imagine the abilities that the wizards have in Harry Potter and how much that would be worth to muggles. But they never seemed to mix the muggle economy and the wizard economy. You know, it's a such like businessmen should be able to hire a wizard to teleport them from meeting to meeting. It would be totally worth it. And they could charge $10,000 because it's like, right. well, I could go across the world. You know, yeah, I'll do that. Um, so that, that, that you know, in, in, a, in, in the fantasy world. So there's the medieval economy, which definitely exists in, in their fantasy worlds. But then we have this like other layer of our, of our, our top 1%, if you will. You know, the, the high-level wizards who now have access to bags of holding and portable holes and teleport and plane shift. And they, you know, their economy is completely different than the economy of the typical farmer who has never traveled more than five miles away from their home. Yeah, Planescape's an interesting place because if we ran Planescape to its logical conclusion, the poorest urchin living on the street would be vastly more wealthy like a million <laughs> times more wealthy than like your common person living on a regular planet in a medieval world right because and they it, have is it that same is it that same economy of the if you're sitting on the infinite dungeon like yeah. you know, there's a, there's a limitless supply because you're at you have access to literally limitless worlds yeah you think about it right it's like somebody who lives in modern New York and like fills their pockets with everything from a 7-Eleven they could possibly carry and then teleports to the 13th century, right? It's like, they're just going to be, potato chips, I have the magic, right? And what is this magic? Ah, oh, it is the potato, which you have not seen. And it is fried and it is full of calories and eats one and it is delicious and it will not too nutritious. And, but, and then here's like a... Microwave burrito. It is magic. Right? So, <laughs> right. See, I think that single to the fantasy world, there are a bunch of people walking around on 7-Eleven burritos. And they're like <laughs> munching on them as they walk uh, through. McDonald's apple pies. Right? Like, like, where the hell did that come from? They're like walking through like these chaotic good planes going, sup, right? And munching on their burrito and like walking through the door again, right? They're those guys. Right. It's like, it's a, a sigil is, is really interesting because you'd think that, first of all, everybody would monetize those doors. Yeah. Right? 
I can get this thing from that door and go to that door and now I can sell it. So now you've got this big international trade hub that's sitting in the middle of the plains because, yeah, they're chaotic evil, but man, have you seen like their swords? They're awesome and like the lawful good people really want them. So I'm just going to like ship them and it's okay because I'm carrying through the, the streets of Sigil and nobody in Sigil really cares. So I'm just walking through the streets with like these hundred swords wrapped up over my arm. Okay. And so they're spewing <laughs> demons, but nobody cares, right? Because right. it's cool. It's cool, man. It's cool. Well, the mean, Lady of Pain is making sure that nobody gets out of line. She's just skimming a little bit off the top on every transaction. <laughs> Probably, like, I get 1%. Yeah, no, she's not even doing that. She's just charging sales tax. Right? She doesn't need to be corrupt. Right. She's, got a, she's got a government. Right. right? The, the, God. Yeah. The, the Lady of Pain is actually highly incentivized to be as non-corrupt as possible and to crush all corruption in her city because corruption puts friction into economic systems. If you have to pay a bribe, that is less profit for you. Mm. And that means that you are less incentivized to do a business transaction if there's a third person in between you that is taking a bribe and skimming money off the top. Your city is much poorer for the corruption. Every dot of corruption just makes your city that much more poor. Mm. So last thing you really want the government on top, if they want their city to be have the maximum amount of money pouring through them and into their pockets, then they want the least amount of corruption. They want courts that actually work. They want jails that actually work. They want to take people that commit crimes and just want to heave them outdoors at random, right? Okay, here's the door. <laughs> Pull, out you go. All right, now you're gone. Everybody go. Right? The last thing they want is crime and corruption. They want it to be as clean and as neat and as orderly and as safe as possible because they want everybody to be able to do as much like what would seem to be unlawful business anywhere else, right? Okay, so it's five kilos of heroin here. Uh, there you go. But, <laughs> nobody, but what they want is they want, they want to be a giant Singapore. They, they want, right, right she, she wants to crush dissent and she wants to crush crime and crush corruption because she wants as many people coming to her city to trade as possible because at the end of the day, her city's taking sales tax. Right. And, you know, the more sales tax they get, the more that they can build, the more infrastructure they can build, the more they can pay themselves. Hmm. And it's all legal and it's all fine. And so corruption is bad in civil. And so if it's, it's, you think about that and you're like, well, there's a lot of really dirty parts of it. You're like, well, yeah, it's dirty, right? It's an industrial city. <laughs> it's got dust from a billion worlds in it it's got dust from a billion worlds you got that guy that's walking down the street with like the thousand demon swords on his shoulder right, like, doo -doo 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 -doo, right? And, the passing, and the guy Coffee passing with some super just, flu yeah yeah and you got like these three guys passing by and they're still also eating the burritos from 7-eleven yeah 7-eleven on the other side of that door man don't lose that key. all right you just open it up reach into the freezer and just close it again and you know, so so Sigil's a really cool place, but it would be just a giant financial entrepot. It would just be the amount of money that would just fountain out of that. It would look like the city of brass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why, why um, not just build everything in gold? It's cheap. I have the right. store. Open it up. Anyway, it's the prime right. material plane of gold. Right. Look, I just take it out, and then right. I just steam it the, places. Uh, yeah, right. I'm the bottom of the money well. Yeah. Um, I could just, yeah, so I could, I could talk about this stuff all night, but uh, I think we really have time for about maybe one more question. So, so Alex, pick your favorite. Okay, uh, this one's from Short Man Ian in Twitch chat. He wants to know what's the most expensive thing that you had in your game, and what were the players willing to spend to buy it? 
Oh God. Uh, you know what? It's funny. I, I don't, I've got no answer to that question. Uh, I haven't run a game in myself personally in many years. <laughs> and, um, have you seen one in particular in a game that caught your eye? Uh, most expensive thing. Oh man. Um, I'm sitting here thinking that our, our D and D fifth edition characters didn't get much over seventh level. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're playing Blades in the Dark right now, and it's it's funny. It's um, it's a completely different model than any of the straight D and D stuff, and uh, it's funny because the wealth in that game is all sort of based on influence and uh, skullduggery while avoiding the cops. And uh, we, we've seen some very expensive pieces in basically buying and selling souls. That's fairly interesting. Well, so souls are a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, so, so that's, that's, those that's, aren't cheap. Yeah, so, so, so that's like human souls, right? Yeah, for sale, cheap, you know. Um, so, so that's pretty interesting from sort of an economic model. Because then you get some morality that's, that's built into that, too. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, um, got, I've got a couple. Um, so one was in my in my Horde of the Dragon Queen Rise of Tiamat game. The characters got to I think they hit twentieth level. They actually went all the way to the lower the ninth level of hell and fought you know all kinds of stuff. And they had the um, it's it's a cloud giant castle that you can acquire in the end of you can possibly acquire at the end of the first adventure. And uh, I wanted it to act as sort of a big money sink. So part of it was it it. They had to keep it cold, which meant they needed to have a continual set of wizards who were on staff to constantly cast either cones of cold or rays of frost to keep it frozen because it was this big block of ice, right? And if they're and the further south they went, the more mages they needed to keep it cold, and the mages needed a cost per day, and they were kind of the mages were all a bunch of egotists, so they had to you know deal with the mages a lot, and um, it. To actually move it, it had an engine, but the engine only got its power from magic items that you would feed into it. Oh. So all all of their old magic items, they would have to like hurl them in. And depending on the power of the magic item, how powerful it was, was how much they would fuel the ship. And they think they ended up throwing like an intelligent sword into it. They 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 found this like legendary artifact, and they're like, well, we don't really want it. So they hurl, I think, I can't remember what it was, but they hurled like a legendary artifact in there. And that was enough to power for essentially the rest of the campaign. Like it was enough enough energy. But they had to have like, not, not, they didn't have to just have the wizards. They had to have all of the people to support the wizards and all of the animals to support the people. So they ended up having like a town that was on their castle whose whole, whole infrastructure was just to maintain themselves and maintain these wizards that kept the thing operating. And they burned a lot of money on that. But they 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 offset it by turning it into a timeshare. So they got rich... Turning a timeshare. Yeah, they got rich nobles. <laughs> it's on Airbnb. It was Airbnb. So they got... Oh, it's great. So they got rich nobles who would um, pay to travel around on this cloud castle. And they charged them a lot. But they were complete pains in the asses. Who like every time the adventurers would come back, these guys would go and complain to them and rate them poorly and and talk about the, the how the pillows and they had like one who constantly like dueled them, but they had to be nice to him because he's the B and B guy. And it turned out his wife was a secret agent of the dragon cult, you know. And so there's all this drama that, but that that was probably the highest cost item 
that our group ever dealt with. And it ended up being a good piece of the campaign. And again, like I think it started off with what a pain in the ass and then got to something that they clearly remember to this day. I'm sure if I brought it up to the group now, years later, they'd be like, oh yeah, I remember that one dude who, you know, would constantly get into duels, right? He always wanted to duel the party and then the, the party would summarily, you know, like take his foil and hurl it off the edge of the cloud, gun, the, the cloud castle. And you know, right, there's a door on that castle, footing castle, that opens to Sigil. <laughs> right, yeah, but they had they had plane shifts, so they could just do it, yeah. And there's some guy, right. and he's got the key, and he just keeps walking through, right? Every <laughs> once in a while, it's like you got the one guy he's trying to duel, and, and somebody else who's, like, worshipping dragons, and all of a sudden you just got this guy that's just walking through in the back, just We're eating something. Yeah. Go on, go on. Get that burrito. Yeah, and he's got a burrito, and he's like, sup? <laughs> and he, like, just walks through, and then he just disappears in the other door, and he's yeah, gone. the hell? Yeah. Yeah, excellent. So, Emily, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, uh, I've, uh, you know, I, like I said, I'm a huge fan of your articles. I highly recommend them to, to everybody. They're just they're hysterical, and they really they really bring a totally different view to how we typically run our games, where you know adventurers go into dungeons deep and come out with bags laden of gold. Uh, one one article that I wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to was the uh, the un, you know an article on unloading a magic pair of boots. And the, and, the, and the troubles therein, which seems like the most mundane, you're like, I've got these boots of speed and I just want to get rid of them. And it ends up where, I'll, I'm going to spoil the article, the best thing you could do with them is throw them back in the river. You know? <laughs> because, because trying to deal with the Cobbler's Guild and the Wizard's Guild and the Assassin's Guild, who all have a stake in those stupid boots. It's not worth the energy to try to sell them for 150 gold pieces. I think I think Yandu was like, go ahead and pry the soles off them and, and sell the rubber. You yeah, know. it was something like that. Was like <laughs> part. Right. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, uh, Alex, thank you for, for hosting the show once again. Thanks to all the folks who are in uh, the Twitch chat. It looks like we had a lot of really fun conversations going on in Twitch. And uh, to those of you that are watching this on YouTube or listening to on the podcast, thank you as well. And, yes, and have a great... Fantastic. Oh, uh, what do you have to pitch? Do you have, uh, where can people find you? And what would you like, to, what would you like people to look at? Oh, um, so you can find me at, at Multiplexer on Twitter. Uh, that's where I've been since Twitter has existed. And uh, what do I have to pitch? Uh, what do I have to pitch? Uh, I am going to recommend that everybody go buy Kevin Culp's game Time Watch from oh, Hellbrain yeah. Press. It's fantastic. So I, I, I am pimping Kevin. All right, go buy Time Watch. It's great. Yep. I, and I and if you can get Kevin to run it for you, <laughs> you have yes. Even better. I don't think he comes with it, but no, I've had the I've had the, the come with it. He doesn't come with it, but I've had the great pleasure of of playing Time Watch with Kevin Culp. I think a couple of times. I've had yes. a very good time. Yeah. So so I, good, I, I had to recommend this game. Good on you for pitching someone else's product too. That's right. <laughs> I wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you once again. It's been really great. Okay. Thank you so very much. Have a good night, everybody. Okay. All right. Thanks, for everyone, everyone, for watching. Uh, our next stream will be tomorrow night at 10.30 Eastern with the Venture Maidens. Good night, everyone.